The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 88 is Lincoln Barr, who founded the band Red Jacket Mine in Seattle in 2003. He put out three albums and an EP with them, and you're right now hearing Memory Up and Die from his first solo album, 2017's Trembling Frames. We're going to be talking about Desperate Tormentors, also from that album. Then looking back to Apricot Moon from Red Jacket Mine's 2009 album, Lover's Lookout. And then Jesus' House from Red Jacket Mine's 2008 album, Hello Old Cloud. And we'll conclude by listening to another song off the new album, How to Escape. For more information, please see LincolnBarMusic.com. For more about this podcast, visit NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please contribute at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. I will have played a little bit of Memory Up and Die from the new album Trembling Frames 2017 because it has a cool intro, but it's hard for me to kind of put my finger on. Normally I play as the opening thing, the classic single, like the where you started or something, but the new album has a lot more jazz in it. All three of the Red Jacket Mine albums sound very different. Where did you start? What are your core influences? How did you get? You want to talk about that journey from where you started to because we're going to get to Desperate Tormentors also from the new album pretty quickly. So give us a one or two minute of that connection. I started recording and playing shows under the name Red Jacket Mine before it was really a band. And I guess it would have been 2003. And at that time, I think I was really enamored of the sort of four track indie pop kind of guided by voices, Elliot Smith, anybody that was sort of this kind of manic one man band songwriting sort of machine. And in a way, like Red Jacket Mind, the band didn't get around to writing those types of like energetic twist and turn sort of pop songs until quite late. And maybe our 2013 record, Someone Else's Cake, was probably true as to what I set out to do originally with that band. So I can find the thread in everything that we did as a band that leads me up to today, but I wouldn't necessarily expect that of a listener, right? I think it might be something a little bit more between the lines and the way that the chords are put together, or certainly lyrically, there are themes, but it's a pretty diverse bunch of songs, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just listening to the first two Red Jacket Mine albums, the 2008's Hello Old Cloud and 2009 Lover's Lookout, just today, and Hello Old Cloud in particular, the song is obviously very complete in itself, just you playing acoustic guitar and singing. Like, And there's other stuff on top of it. The arrangements are pretty elaborate in some cases, but you could tell that you could do this as a solo act. So it still had the jazzy twists and turns in the chord progressions and the riffs built into your finger picking right there from the start. As a way of introducing Trembling Frames, I thought it was interesting that you decided to do this. I was reading on your website live. So it's basically a jazz backing group and you're just singing, right? Actually, I did play guitar live on the record too. Yeah. So most of it is, I'd say it's probably 70% acoustic guitar and then electric guitar and a few tracks, but I'm playing that live with the band. Not a lot of overdubs, though, guitar-wise. There may not be any. Give us a little more background on that album and Desperate Tormentors in particular before we play it, and then we'll talk in more depth about the song. You know, I like to introduce this song and just say that it's kind of about how forgiveness is overrated. (laughs) I don't really mean that anymore, but I certainly meant it when I wrote the song. That storyline is kind of baked into the whole record. It comes out of a very turbulent time in my life where I was kind of figuring out the source of some mental health struggles that I've been dealing with for basically my whole life. There's a happy ending. Yeah, you know, I'm still here. I'm here talking to you today. Meanwhile, I was also still totally dedicated to the songwriting craft and had been sort of pulling at this thread of taking apart Great American Songbook type of songs and that sort of thing for a couple of years. And it all sort of came out in a matter of a couple of months, these songs. I made the connection on how to put together a chord progression and a melody like that, or at least as close as I've ever gotten. And I also made some deeper connections about my inner space. And that's where these songs come from. 
followed the kind of Elvis Costello path of your interest in pop music going back in time as time is going forward, that you're definitely in the samba, you know, the 50s, early 60s territory here. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some truth to that. I think that I've always been drawn to things that are complex and quote unquote smart pop music. I mean, even early, early on in my songwriting career, I was very enamored of XTC, which is one of the reasons I found your mm-hmm. podcast. And Elvis Costello, I've been a huge fan of his from day one. And so, you know, just like anyone, I think that if you want to go deeper and if you want to get better yourself, you're like, well, what makes these songwriters that I love tick? What are they listening to? You know what I mean? Where does that come from? And so you start digging backwards. And I've always been kind of a digger in that way. So, yeah, who knows where I go from here. (laughs) I don't know how much further back I'll go, but I think there's some truth to that, that as I've developed my songwriting, it's sort of resulted in me going back to more and more kind of classic forms. Well, it's interesting that you say that this song is about, that it's basically an aggressive song. (laughs) Kind of. About lack of forgiveness, but yet... It's very sublimated, if that's the case, (laughs) that you've gone into this crooner mode, and it's not an over-the-top, ridiculous, Elvis foaming-at-the-mouth crooner mode. It's a very nice and restrained, (laughs) with, you know, a lot of subtleties in the way, you know, I like the history haunts, the fool, like that, you've got these little subtleties in the way you're delivering it. What made this a natural 
expression of this particular sentiment? I honestly don't know. I mean, I think that I had already written a few of the songs from the record before I got to this Desperate Tormentors. And I remember when I first kind of came upon that lyric, I had a much different musical backing in mind. I mean, it, it was still probably in the vein of the rest of the record, but it wasn't this kind of bossa nova sort of progression that you find on the finished song. I don't know why that seemed like a natural fit. I mean, I think the whole record is kind of put together that way, where there are some very kind of probing, tortured, angry, in some cases, songs. And most of the time, the music kind of runs counter to that. It might be dark or kind of naughty in a way, but it's never aggressive. I mean, I think that's just, you know, that's kind of the type of person I am. <laughs> but I think that the chords probably say more about my ambivalence about the topics at hand than anything, because the chords are very rarely, you know, straightforward, major, minor. I was just happy when I came upon this, quite honestly. I'd always kind of wanted to write a song musically like this. And it came out that way. And I was pleased with it. And the details of... You know, you've got some little timbali things. <laughs> you've got when it gets lighter at the end, the drums go into this woodblock thing before coming back in. Burning for chances out of your space. Certainly arranging piano like this, whatever one's interest is in jazz, the piano player has to do that. Say something about how hands-on you are in setting the arrangements of telling your band what to do and how much rehearsal went into this. How spontaneous was this? Well, it's funny you should say that. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, this record wouldn't be what it is without the band that plays on it. I mean, we cut everything live to two-inch tape. I don't know if there are any edits. The vocals are live. Even the backing harmonies. No, that's Goodyear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually not. It's a close friend of mine, actually, Jeff Brown, who I've oh. sung with a lot. Uh, so that is one of the overdubs. On this particular song, the only overdubs are the backing vocal and then the saxophone solo. That's my friend Levon Henry. And he cut that in his apartment in Brooklyn. But everything else is live. The band is just amazing. I mean, it was John Convertino from Calexico on drums. A good friend of mine named Keith Lowe, who's played with all sorts of folks, Wayne Horvitz, Fiona Apple on upright bass. And then one of my closest friends and musical collaborators, Daniel Walker on piano on this track. And Dan's just a monster. But we didn't really do any rehearsal. We did one afternoon of rehearsal the day before we went into the studio. We did have charts. But these guys are just crazy good and crazy sympathetic players. And everyone was listening really closely. And I feel like you can hear it. I was an honor to be in the room with those guys, quite honestly. And not to mention, it's a cost-effective way of doing it. It really is. Records always seem to end up costing about the same amount. I don't know why, but it's certainly a much more energy-efficient <laughs> way of making a record. It's very satisfying to play the song. And then basically, you have the record. You're hearing back the record as opposed to the like building it up track by track. And sometimes it takes quite a long time for it to feel like you're listening to, you know, a finished piece. So, yeah, I found it to be a really satisfying way of working. So just looking at the structure a little bit here, you've got this piano solo about a minute in and then the second verse is just like two lines. You're just so hungry. We need the chorus again immediately. Just... I think I tend to do that a lot. The songwriters that I listen to tend to do that a lot where you have these kind of uneven structures at times. You know, I guess that particular case is the piano takes the first half of the verse and then the vocal takes the second half of the verse and the, and the structure doesn't necessarily change, but it feels different, right? And I think those types of things for me as a listener, they keep me interested when something feels like it's going to the chorus a little bit sooner, or you're just getting a little bit of a variation each time. And yeah, I think that's what's behind that. And that piano solo. Just monster. When he played that, like a lot of people, I love the Buena Vista Social Club and a lot of that kind of 50s Cuban jazz. And, and I didn't talk to Dan about that before he played that. But when he played it, I was, I was just melting. It was, it was so beautiful. And then what's under the sax solo, it's actually different progression. It goes somewhere else. It is. I'm not good at this sometimes. I guess the song's kind of in like B flat and it goes to this E flat major seven and a progression around that. It resolves to B flat, but it is a totally different progression. Have no idea. I, I think I was just moving my hands around until I found something that sounded good, which is, I think, what I always do. 
I have some theory, but I don't really have any sort of formal training. I can't read music. So a lot of times I'm just searching for something that matches the feeling that I'm after. And then I can figure out what it is. <laughs> Let me play the little bit that is the just the end of that solo. So we can talk about that transition to get back into it. It doesn't surprise me that he wasn't in the room with you because like, it seems like it should end a little earlier than that or something. <laughs> like it just kind of almost tumbles on top of you, you know, so it's not the like, now we have a little stop and then you start again or something like that. But it also doesn't like build up an energy to unleash itself on the new verse. It's a strange transition. <laughs> I just love the way that that solo turned out. The reason that I wanted to talk about this song is it's one of my favorite moments, if not my favorite moment on the record. That was the first time Levon and I had collaborated. It was the first track that I sent him. And the first solo that he sent me was very cool, but it was pretty off the wall, kind of like Ornette Coleman sort of uh, vibes. Early Ornette, <laughs> still tethered to the earth, you know, but it was pretty wild, you know, and I thought it was really great, but it didn't match the lyric. And so I sent Levon the lyric of the song and he came back with that solo I just wept, you know, when he sent it to me, because for me, I mean, you know, of course, I'm projecting a lot onto this. It's my song and I know what it's about. But that solo, as brief as it is, just kind of sums up the whole feeling of the song and the record to me, which is it didn't have to be this way. That's what it says to me. And I just think it's beautiful. So I owe a lot of gratitude to Levon for that. But yeah, it is an interesting transition. You know, again, I just kind of love things like that that aren't tidy. Let's also play just the end to talk about how you decided to wrap this up, that it does the repeating that no one warned you, just like you'd done earlier in the song, but then it sounds like it's going to repeat it a third time, but it's instead just an instrumental thing. Let's... But no one warned you. No one warned you. So again, like that chord is just the piano player injecting something. I think he probably extends it even further. That is a written part of the song, and that is one chord that I cannot name for you. I, I have no, that is a really strange chord. And then, yeah, like I said, I think Dan probably extends it even further on the piano. There are a lot of those kind of question mark chords, I think, on the uh, <laughs> chords of inquiry, as Joni Mitchell would call them, on this record to end some of these songs, and that's definitely an example. One other thing about this song that I just think is so funny is that, you know, typically, like I said, the chord progression is very bossa nova. And I've had drummers that have played with me since then want to steer the song that way, rhythmically. And it's just too cute that way, right? It just doesn't work. And John Convertino is very known for playing Latin styles. You would definitely think that he would be all over that. But instead, I remember the day that we rehearsed before the record, he was like, yeah, just, you know, when I'm playing this song, I'm just thinking about Lowrider by War. <laughs> and I thought, brilliant. I love it. You know what I mean? It keeps that song grounded in a really beautiful way. And I just thought it was inspired. Yeah, it didn't actually occur to me that it's so blatant in its bossa nova-ness in general that it doesn't have the actual, you know, that super choppy part that it, no, it's much smoother than that. But yet that completely works. <laughs> I just thought it was so great. And nobody had to tell him to do that. It was just his natural inclination. And, and it was right on. Let's move to our second Apricot Moon from the Red Jacket Mine 2009 album, Lover's Lookout, produced by Ken Stringfellow, a former guest who I've collaborated with once remotely as well. Set up this album. How did that connection come about? What did he actually do? <laughs> A lot of these songs sound very posies on this album. And so I was kind of like, is that because you're working with him or is that because of what he was doing? Or, I mean, Ken is somebody that I've been a fan of for since I was in college, probably, you know, so 18 years or something like that. And he's someone I've been in contact with for quite a long time. He's He was one of those folks that in the earlier days of the Internet and certainly of music being out in the Internet, he made himself very accessible, which I appreciated as a fan and also admired as a practitioner, you know, and. I remember reaching out to him and sending him one of my four track albums in probably 2003 
And he responded to me and I was just, you know, blown away. He was like, you know, like if you ever want to do something, just look me up. And I had already had plans sort of independently to move to Seattle. Interestingly enough, right around the time that Ken moved to France, he was already in France by the time I moved to Seattle in 2005. But that was always in the back of my mind. Like when I'm ready, when I have a band, I want to make a record with Ken. So the first record that Red Jacket Mind made in around 2006, 2007, which we'll talk about a song for that later, but it's a very elaborate sort of production. And that was super fun. But the next record, Lover's Lookout, that we made with Ken was kind of a reaction against that. It felt that during that time, we became a rock band of sorts. <laughs> and while I thought Hello Old Cloud was a great, you know, turned out to be a really cool record, it didn't represent a rock band really at all. And I wanted to capture that. And so Lover's Lookout, kind of like Trembling Frames, was cut live in the studio to tape. I didn't quite have the confidence to sing those songs live in a room, but the band tracks were all cut live, with Ken usually joining the band. Funnily enough, Apricot Moon, I don't think that Ken sings or plays anything on that song, but it's probably the only one on the record that he doesn't contribute to musically. But he was certainly behind the glass and, you know, had a lot of input on the production. Well, do you want to say something about what this song is about before we hear it here? You know, I don't know what this song is about. It's much more impressionistic. I can pick out certain lines and maybe guess where they might have come from, but this song is just more about kind of conjuring a mood for me, and it still does that for me, and that's why I picked it. Thank you. 
So yes, this swaggering to the point of Zeppelin-esque, I really, especially the way that the strings are used, really got those John Paul Jones neurons firing in my head. Nice. <laughs> yeah, say, say something about how this band was different or how this had evolved by this point. You said the first album is a little more acoustic guitar based. And by this point, you were an actual full rock band. Was this still very much the group is arranging stuff, but you're kind of choreographing the dynamics and the charts pretty much. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that, you know, I tended to write for projects and so I'll get a certain idea of what I want a record to be like, or maybe what the cast of characters is going to be. And that will maybe not start the writing process, but certainly influence the writing process. So maybe I'll have two or three songs, get an idea of what the record's going to be like. And then that will inspire 10 more songs that I'm writing with that band or that sort of backdrop in mind. And I think that was the case with this record. I think that I'd been playing live with this group for a few years at that point. Patrick Porter is the guitarist and pedal steel player, and he was hugely influential, still one of my best friends. Andy Salzman on drums, Ryan Chapman on bass in the band at that time. And I think that, you know, I was just really enjoying playing as a rock band and I wanted to write a set of songs and make a record that really highlighted what that band could do. This song's a great example of that. You know, the zeppelin thing, I think, is totally on point. It's not necessarily something I was thinking of at that time. And I don't know that there are any other songs on that record that have that sort of vibe, but... I really like the way this one turned out. That's Avon Kang on the viola there, and he's just an amazing musician. So that at least was overdubbed. The strings were overdubbed, and then there's a backing vocal and an electric guitar in the bridge. That's Ian Moore, who lives in the Seattle area, and he came by the studio one day and cut the vocal and guitar. I don't think the rest of the band was there at the time, and I remember Ken and I sitting there listening to Ian cut this just off the wall guitar, very kind of Tom Verlaine, but through a Tweed Deluxe sort of vibe, it seemed like. And we were just freaking out. And then appropriately, and you can hear it right at the end, the last phrase, the amp, it's a 50s deluxe, right? And the amps just went and, and he had to punch the amp to get it to stop. And we left that on the record because it just seemed appropriate. I was actually thinking of Jesus's house, the third song, because that also has a, it's a very acoustic song, but then it has this big farty electric guitar that comes on just during part of it. Uh, <laughs> so I guess it blended a little more on Apricot Moon. But you know, there's a theme here, right? <laughs> sure, sure. I guess that's the same kind of thing. You've set up this bossa nova for the first thing and like, eh, just do straight rock drums. But as long as they're in the same tone, it doesn't matter if they have the same pedigree, <laughs> you know, the same instrument class, like just try something. Yeah, just something to have it a little bit off center, right? Like I didn't want to just do a straight ahead standards record on Trembling Frames, you know what I mean? Or a straight ahead power pop record, even though I love power pop music. There's a lot of those records I love. That's never been the thing that I wanted to do. You know, I like things that have layers and things where there's something that you can discover over time. And if you're a fan of a lot of different records and a lot of different styles of music like me, I would like to think that those elements are there to discover and appreciate in the records that I've made. That's certainly what I've tried to do. Well, let's talk focusing on this one. I mean, you say you're not sure what the lyrics are about, but this was a music first one, I assume, or at least simultaneous, because you don't just sit down and write woo 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 woo. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. I think early on, 
through the first probably five or 10 years of Red Jack and Mine, I was always kind of a music first guy. These days, it comes in different ways, but that used to be my MO. Um, and this one certainly yeah, just came from that guitar part and kind of built out from there. I'd say on the new record, as you're saying, like the first song that we talked about, Desperate Tormentors, is extremely coherent. There's no great question of what the individual lines are about. But here, like we're outside in a road and then we're climbing a path, but then we're in a cave but there's a clouds covering the moon. It's all general atmospheric descriptions, but it's either describing different parts of a long journey, which is kind of fits with the Zeppelin. Zeppelin had its own kind of Lord of the Rings influenced <laughs> lyrics. The fact that you, you're using damp, dusky, and dolorous, that you put dolorous in a song. <laughs> Like that. <laughs> I'm still pretty proud of that one. <laughs> if it rolls on the tongue, then it's fine. You're right. I mean, Desperate Tormentors and a lot of the songs on the new record are very straight ahead. And that was a new thing for me, just knowing how to do that and feeling like I could do that without and still be artful and not just be a diary entry. Trembling Frames by far is the most personal record that I've ever made. That being said, you know, Lover's Lookout comes out of a kind of a tough time in my life, too. And I think that it's just much more obscure. I don't think I had the tools or maybe the bravery, right, to write anything that was too straight ahead. But, you know, I think that that record tends to wrestle a lot with themes of devotion and kind of how do you keep a long-term relationship going and be happy and fulfilled. There's a bit of that in this song, and maybe that's the long journey. I've never thought of it that way, but that could be a very astute observation. You're still using the same word palette and the new stuff. I mean, you desperate tormentors flail dutifully on with no provocation to base their fury upon, but yet it still rolls. You make it sound so good. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue when you're singing it. If I just write like I think, then I end up, because I read too much philosophy, but I end up stacking things into it. I sound like I'm doing a philosophy novelty song record, which would probably be a fine thing for me to do as far as my audience at this point. But I usually try to dumb it even in this, there's ain't in both songs. So, so I'm from the South. You know, I grew up in Mississippi and Arkansas, and that's the way that my family talks. You know what I mean? And so I ain't above my raisin. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I know the word dolorous. <laughs> they say the devil is feminine. What do they know? This ain't the sound of me giving in, ceding control. Any idea how thematically like that jumps in? We're no longer talking about the path and the climate. Well, you know, I feel like maybe that's my sort of subconscious leaping out from the obfuscation and abstract picture that I'm setting up, because I think those were probably some of the feelings that I was struggling with at the time. That story has a happy ending, too. You know, my wife and I have been together for a very long time, like 18 years, but this record, Lover's Lookout, kind of comes out of a difficult time, you know, that we were having. And I wasn't sure at that time how it was going to turn out. This song, it's one of the songs that deals with that, like in a, the least literal way on this record. But it's still in there. Repeating, we're already underground. That's uh, optimistic. <laughs> it's more a, this is troubling, we're down so low, rather than you're talking about your subconscious or something like that. Yeah, I, it beats me, you know <laughs> okay. what I mean? But yeah, I think it was probably a fairly, you know, bleak outlook at that time. And that's probably what I thought I was saying anyway. Yeah, I mean, I certainly like the idea of the whole reason to use symbolism and use abstract expression like this is because what you're feeling cannot be easily just put into a, a message that you want to deliver to someone. And it's not even just strictly describing the emotion involved that there is some sort of expression but it's just an indirect weird expression yeah and it's just kind of a fraught sort of thing to put it plainly would not be doing it justice it's always more complex than that and i think that's where some of the musical complexity comes from too even on the songs on trembling frames that i am able to sort of come out and say some of these things more plainly that alone isn't enough for me you know what i mean and the music is saying the rest of how I feel about a particular thing at a given time. Because I was thinking about Ken Stringfellow when, when listening to this, I was kind of picturing him with that first verse. Like that's very much a melody that I could picture him singing, 
But if he was doing it, he would kind of cheese it out more in terms of like, I don't know that your voice does that. It's a more restrained voice in general. Like the reason that most people wouldn't think of Zeppelin is because like, well, there's nothing, even an octave down Robert Plant going on here. There's There are no histrionics. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah, that's just not how I sing. You know what I mean? I've certainly come into my voice, I feel, and it's much stronger than it used to be. But that type of singing doesn't really appeal to me, and it's just not what I naturally do. You know, Ken is just a tremendous singer, and I admire his instrument so much. And he does a lot of singing on that record on some other songs. But yeah, I wouldn't dare try and imitate what he would do, although I would love to hear him do that song. It'd be super cool. The reason I was thinking that is just if you get to the point of they say the devil is feminine, even if you're having a more relaxed delivery in a lot of this, it's certainly open to get to that point and just pull out the histrionics, as you say. But depending on how the mood is actually supposed to go. I mean, it seems like with most of the songs, at least of yours that are coming to mind, they're really not supposed to be. Elliot Smith is still emotional extremes, even though it's not belting emotional extremes. It's just a different way of doing that. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think it's partly just my own sort of physical limitations and what I naturally gravitate toward. And then also that in some ways has probably influenced my taste. Was there a time before we were getting to these albums that we're talking about where you weren't as sure of the limits of your instrument and <laughs> tended to over push it? I don't really think so. I think I came into this kind of playing on my own. I didn't necessarily have garage bands. I mean, I played with people in high school or something, you know, but that isn't really the way that I came at it. And so I think it's actually been a process of drawing out my voice and finding power in my voice rather than kind of going full bore, pulling back and then kind of easing back into it. I think the biggest thing that I've had to teach myself to do or allow myself to do is open it up, right? Sing out and sing with power. That is not something that came naturally to me. I think for reasons probably more mental and emotional than physical. Just to get back to the arrangement, let's just play the very end. Yeah, that's Patrick Porter on the pedal steel, man. Just an amazing musician. And he played in Red Jacket Mine for about five years and plays a lot on these first two records. It was great having him. I still play with him any chance I can get. Yeah, some of those pedal steel parts on this, like I wasn't exactly sure that that's what I was hearing. Like it was, it was more just providing a noise floor for things, you know, that you hear the articulated sounds over it, but you've got this, you know, it could be a keyboard pad, but no, it's this more stylized. Totally. Yeah. He doesn't come at it from the country angle. I mean, he can do a bit of that. And obviously that's kind of baked into the instrument there. It's hard to touch it and not have it sound like country music in a way, but he comes at it from a much more kind of vocal and atmospheric place. So yeah, he rarely kind of did the obvious thing, which, uh, which I loved. Well, speaking of country and speaking of the obvious thing, <laughs> Let's shift mode into our third one, Jesus's House, which there's definitely some surprises in it, but it starts off certainly as a country waltz. Again, we're going back to the first album here. This song I probably wrote in 2005 or something, right after I moved to Seattle. And I think I'd wanted to write a song like this for a long time, just in form. Musically, this pretty traditional, there are some little twists, but pretty traditional country song, kind of a fallen out of love kind of ballad. But I knew that I didn't necessarily want to write one that was about falling out of love with a girl with it or something like that. And I think I found the inspiration to write a song like this when it was falling out of belief. And that's basically what the song's about. i 
we were just ending the last discussion talking about the steel guitar providing a noise floor for the whole thing. Here you've got this ringing cymbal over <laughs> most of the song, this <laughs> that's providing this, which is not normal country, but it, then when it stops a little bit and starts up, you know, that provides a little dynamic interest. We made this record, funnily enough, at Studio Litho in Seattle, which is Stone Gossard's studio. And that's the same studio where I made Trembling Frames uh, over 10 years later. That probably was a symbol that was just around the studio, just kind of an old, trashed out symbol. It could have been one of Andy's, Andy Salzman, the drummer from Red Jacket Mine. It's hard to know. But yeah, we were definitely going for that junkyard kind of drum feel on this. You got this nice light arpeggio acoustic with just a boom, boom, crack, you know, very different (laughs) dynamic things put on top of each other. Of course, it's, you know, not unheard of. That's what drums do. (laughs) They beat hard, but, you know, it's very unlike the new song where it's there, but it's providing a nice little smooth pattern. This one is smacking you in the face. Yeah, this record is the first record that I ever made in a real studio with a real producer and a real band. And I felt the need, I felt compelled on this record to just do everything, to scratch every single itch that I think that I'd ever had, sonically or otherwise. (laughs) And so I think there's definitely a lot of that on this song. And in spite of that, I think it still turned out pretty good. (laughs) But there's excess all over this record, production-wise, I would say. Although one thing that was not excessive, the background vocals, when those come in, you could very easily do this like the band. In other words, have some voice that is definitely not yours doing a strong or, you know, even a female voice doing the Graham Parsons thing. But this is you singing against yourself, those places where, or somebody. Yes. Yeah. I think that this particular song, yeah, the backing vocals are, are me. When you go then to the parallel octaves part of that, as opposed to the thirds against yourself in the verses, it just makes it very smooth. Like If I want to have that effect, I kind of have to sing against myself. It almost doesn't work to have someone else do that. There's too much variation to make it sound like you're a harmonic of yourself, which is what the parallel octave thing does. There are benefits and I think liabilities to both, right? Like there's no way that you're ever going to sing against yourself and have that magic thing that happens when different voices rub together. But there are some jobs that are best done yourself, I guess. And and yeah, I think that really closely tracking kind of harmony, you can't really ask anyone else to do that. Although now you can digitally, you can ask somebody else to do it. That's true. (laughs) Could you turn on the plugin, please? Line it all up, auto-tune it. Make it enough in the background so that really, you know, does become a, actually the guy that I do studio stuff, he, he invariably will, if like you repeat a chorus, he will take the backing vocals, not just from that chorus, but from the other choruses as well, just to stack them. So it's the backing harmony. So there's two or three of them. So it really doesn't sound like a person anymore, a single person. It sounds like a little choir, even though they're singing in unison with themselves. But I do like that for this kind of song in particular. I like the identifiable, whether it's a Lennon and McCartney kind of thing, you know, where you know that's what I'm extending that to the band. Not that most people know their five voices <laughs> apart from each other, but like they're all distinct and they're vibrating at different rates. And it's, it's weird. This is the one that has that the big guitar enters. It eventually does a solo, but it comes in a couple times just to flutter there a little bit. And it's, pretty discordant with the rest of, I mean, we've already said that the drums are huge and nasty compared to the very light acoustic that's played over it. But still, despite the drums, almost everything else is pretty smooth until that one element comes along. There's this kind of turnaround that goes from the verse to the chorus. The chorus is sort of in the relative minor to the verse, A minor versus C, but there's a turnaround where there's a B with a flat five. It's like a Telecaster through this really weird pedal that our producer Sean Simmons had. And it wasn't a pedal that you can buy at a store. Someone had made it, but it basically just sounded like a kind of a torn speaker. (laughs) And it was super cool. And that was a perverse move, I think, to put that. But this song kind of needed that. It needed something to kind of fuck it up a little bit. And this certainly fit the bill. The fact that you've got what I have listed as a bridge, but you play it more than once. So you could do it. It's a chorus, too. But this let me just play the, the giant circus beat part a little bit. <laughs>
Yeah, so it's that big guitar. Actually, I think that's the first time it comes in. Is it to anticipate this extreme oom-pa-pa backing vocal, floating triplet piano thing? You know, it's not like you pulled in trombones or something. It's not like full bore circus, but if they'd been available, <laughs> maybe I would have. There is everything on this song. When I was listening back to it, I was just blown away at how much stuff we put on it. I mean, there's pump organ, tack piano, singing saw, viola this crazy guitar sound and then just the basic band i think keith Loeb uh, again playing upright bass it's weird how these things just kind of connect over time but uh yeah keith the same guy that played on trembling frames in the same room that i made trembling frames played on this record you know 10 years before but yeah it's just the kitchen sink i don't know what i would have been thinking of when I decided to cast this part of the song that way but again it all felt kind of still like that carnival junkyard kind of vibe that I was talking about earlier with the drum sound. It just felt of a piece with that, but it certainly goes widescreen in that section of the song. Well, and can I ask, so this is your first album. You're saying this is the same studio that you did the most recent thing at, which I was saying the most recent thing. That's a really cost-effective way to do it. This is not sound. (laughs) Did you go deeply into debt on this one? Like, Yeah, I mean, certainly my financial situation was precarious at the time. But it's kind of a matter of, do you want to... I'm a musician. I like to get paid (laughs) to play music. And so I definitely want to, if at all possible, I want to make sure that my friends get paid when they play music with me. And it's not cheap to get a lot of top caliber musicians in the same room at the same time, but then you've got them all there, right? And you can make a lot of music in a very short period of time. When you build it up, like we did on this record, at any given time, I probably didn't have $2,000 worth of musicians in the room, (laughs) but I certainly built that up over time, right? You know what I mean? And so the two records probably ended up costing very close to the same amount, but Hello Old Cloud took a hell of a lot longer. That's for sure. Even apart from musician payments, strictly the studio time that when I'm yeah. home recording, like I will just, let's put a 12th vocal on this. Let's put, <laughs> right. let me pull out, you know, my big jar of percussion and screw around with this and, and just experiment a lot. And it's really just, you know, my own patience being the only thing that is limiting what's going on. But having then just gone into the studio to like, Oh, let's just. I record at home and then go into mix or master or, you know, some combination of those things. But this time, like, okay, there are a few things we didn't get to. So we'll just record those in the studio. So we're putting background vocals and things. And it really comes down to like, is it worth $25 to me for you to sing that one additional part? Like, Nah, I don't know. You know it's, it's weird. Yeah. How, how much you can be aware of that. Right. <laughs> and that's the opposite of making music. You know, it, it can be really stressful. <laughs> Yeah, any specifics that we want to pull out here? One thing that I was thinking about about this song that I don't think I'd ever thought about before, but just lyrically, like I said, this song is sort of a falling out of love song, but this Jesus character who's, you know, may or may not be the Jesus that you know, uh, is the object that the narrator is falling out of love with. But there's a line, I think, in the second verse about wandering the corridor silently. I had this image in my mind of the sort of uh, the kept woman, <laughs> you know what I mean? The person who's sort of trapped in this house and isn't happy, but is sort of, yeah, belongs to the beloved. Have you ever seen the movie? I'm sure you have. Fanny and Alexander, the Ingmar Bergman. Sure. So it's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it so many times over the years, and I don't know for sure if I'd seen it yet when I wrote this song, but that's the image that I had in my mind. There's in this movie, the main character's mother marries an evil bishop and they live in this bishop's castle in Sweden and they're basically held captive there. And I just thought, you know, I must have watched that movie around that time for the first time because that's the picture that I had in my mind is sort of wandering the corridors of this stuffy, cold, ominous castle. And it's just something that jumped out at me when I looked at the lyrics again. So I thought it was pretty cool. Now I'm trying to figure out like how this symbolism connects to the actual typical ways of, yes, I was raised religious and yeah, I, I, after a while I didn't see the point of it anymore. Like, or, you know, which is exactly right. Yeah. It, it wasn't at all that, that dramatic. <laughs> to Jesus house, I made my way in seeking medicine. He held on a platter, a salve that could shatter my doubt. I cast it away. He bid me to stay. He begged me to come back home, but some revelations come easier when you're alone. <laughs> To what extent are you just spinning this as a yarn as opposed to 
I have various experiences that I'm translating in some way, as opposed to just taking a theme and going with it. <laughs> no, I think it's much more the former. Yeah. There was the idea of the song, which is rooted in reality, right? You know, I did grow up very religious. And then at a certain point, I decided I don't need that anymore. And then I liked the almost perverse way of addressing that type of topic in this setting. But then, yeah, once I'd established the idea, I think I was just spinning a yarn. You know what I mean? And if I found something that sounded nice and seemed realistic in the world that I had set up, that was sufficient. It didn't need to tie back to any real experience. Since we've been playing the ends of all the songs, let's play the end of this one, which I also thought was interesting because I, I just thought it was going to end a little differently than it did. Let's <laughs> You know, it's not even a solo. It's just going back to the original riff. The sound of the ensemble is going, but there's no, it's not like you have the piano filling up the space or anything. It's almost like purposefully a little boring to just <laughs> kind of like, but then everybody comes together, dum, 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 dum. And I keep like expecting, oh, that's the big gesture that that's the end. No, it just happens. And then it goes, <laughs> it does another two measures. And then, then, five, you know, so it's more like just let's get through the eight measure, you know, that like that you determine the length beforehand. I don't remember thinking about that. I might have at some point, but I think it just seemed like the thing to do at, at the time. <laughs> sure. And again, you've established this like weird circus part and you have all these layers. It could have gotten way more perverse, <laughs> but it's very restrained at this point at the end. Like it's almost back to a, just a regular country song again. I'm not even sure if that giant symbol is still going <laughs> through the whole thing at the very end. I'd have to hear that again. That was more something that struck me at the beginning when there wasn't as much, you know, because it was before the bass had come in and before the song had started in earnest that like, why is there this thick, you know, under the, under the whole thing that was a neat texture. I almost picture a lens kind of like an old movie. The lens slowly closes, right? And that's what that part of the song feels like to me. Like it, it's opened up wide during the circus section and then it just kind of slowly, it's, it doesn't fade out, but that's the visual equivalent of what I feel like I hear in, as that song kind of draws down. You mentioned four track albums. I mean, this is as a first album, this is very developed, very impressive, but I thought you were significantly younger than I am. How many of these four track albums are floating around or, or you know, you want to say a little about your experience getting to this point? Sure. Yeah. Fortunately, they're not floating around. <laughs> I don't think. Well, they probably are somewhere, but uh, maybe in a landfill. I'm 36 and I think I started the Red Jacket Mine when I was 20 or something like that. And so I made two four track based records. And I think I put them both out in 2003. Then when I moved to Seattle, I started the band proper. But at the time, the band was just myself and my best friend and longtime drummer, Andy Salzman. And we made one little EP that was kind of a transitional record. I think we did that on eight track cassette um, <laughs> at the guitar store where we both worked Emerald city guitars. And that was called starboard meets the sound. And so that was starting to go into the territory that you hear on hello old cloud. I think, and no, I don't think there's any of the same songs, but uh, we certainly were playing some of those songs around the same time. And then, yeah, but hello old cloud, we put out in 2008. That was the first kind of, proper record and certainly the first one with any kind of distribution. The others are, you know, they have their moments. I can definitely hear the seeds of where we ended up and where I have ended up, but I'm also happy for them not to be on Spotify <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. None of those songs got remade for the later stuff. You know, now that like we have a better studio now, I really love that old song because for me, the stuff that I wrote when I was 19, that's when I actually had a full emotional life. <laughs> <laughs> in a way that I don't as an adult. So actually for my new album, I resurrected a couple songs from when I was 18. Like I'm going to record them properly now and I'll make them a little less cheesy, you know, change the lyrics a little bit. 
are you sentimental about the old stuff and you're, you're cherishing your, I mean, I think I'm fairly sentimental person. You know, I definitely, like I said, I'm coming around to the idea, even this exercise of listening back to stuff that's 10 or 12 years old. I'm able to look back on that guy, right. That wrote those songs or sang those songs with kindness. You know what I mean? And even some of the songs that maybe I wouldn't have chosen for this, that I don't feel are as realized, you know, I can still sort of admire the, (laughs) what it took to get there. I don't know that I used any of those songs for real records. The song 22 Rose Petal Place on Hello Old Cloud, that one went back probably the furthest. I think I wrote that probably in 2003 or 2004. And it's on that little eight track EP that we made in the guitar store. But I don't think there's anything from the four track records that got remade later. All right, well, let's wrap up here by introducing the last song, another one from the new album, How to Escape, which you had listed as your first single from it. And I saw on your website, you kind of described this as maybe the inaugural song for this project that was a big breakthrough in how you were writing lyrics. And want to just uh, say a few words about it. Yeah, this song was a real turning point for me, sort of, you know, personally and musically, I think that I had been kind of bored with myself for a couple of years. I felt like I was treading water writing wise and I was definitely in my mental state was getting not good. <laughs> and it remained not good for a while after I wrote the song. It didn't cure me, but I found myself able to write about things that I hadn't been able to before, specifically my history of child abuse. And so that's where the song comes from lyrically. And then musically, yeah, just use again, kind of using some of these naughty chords and more traditional sort of structures. I did something on this song that I hadn't heard myself do before and it was really exciting and it was a it was a turning point it kind of led the way for me to write all the other songs on the record so I'm still really really proud of it. All right, well I really enjoyed the new record and actually I think I enjoy it more than going back and listening to the more jangly stuff and sort of seeing it as an evolution of that rather than as like why is this guy just doing this weird acoustic jazz stuff? And that like, for some reason you hear it differently when you realize kind of where it came out of, just cause I don't know what kind of person just starts with writing acoustic jazz stuff. I don't, I don't know too many people like that. So, <laughs> well, thank you, man. No, I really, really appreciate this, Mark. Do 
distance made us strong I only could barely that for so long But how I wish that fantasy were true Thanks so much to Lincoln. Very interesting songs. And probably the best thing to come out of my Patreon account, patreon.com slash music. I met Lincoln through him contributing money there. Perhaps you too would like to be a supporter of this podcast. But even if you can't afford that, all musicians should feel free to drop me a line, mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Share your music with me. I hope you've subscribed to this podcast. My next guest will be Dusty Wright. Get more episodes at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I'm happy to announce that my new album, Mark Lint's Dry Folk, has been released. You can hear the whole thing streaming for free or purchase it at marklint.bandcamp.com. You can also order a CD of that if you wish at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. So I'm super excited about that and super excited to have you having listened to this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Happy holidays. Keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. <laughs>